Good morning, Crossroads. How we doing? What a great celebration of God's goodness. We have living hope, not a hope that is dead, not a hope in a God that is, is uh, on a statue somewhere that representing a dead God, but no, we serve a living, holy, working God who's in our lives showing his grace and mercy every day, loving us beyond measure. Aren't you thankful for that this morning, that we have a God who gives us living hope? A couple of things here before we dive in. Let me just say a big thank you for your prayers. As you know, I've been walking through some health issues. Two weeks ago, I ended up with an ER visit, and uh, it, it's a, a little bit of a journey it's been for me. I have four or five good days, and I have a couple bad days every single week, and uh, so far, none of them have usually hit on the weekend, and so I've usually been pretty good, and uh, two weeks ago, I so appreciate our team ready. I, I tell our team always here at Crossroads, I say, there's three things we got to be ready for. Be ready to preach, pray, and die. And uh, they were ready. Jesse filled in preaching and praying and, and uh, so appreciate our team. Thankfully, no one died, um, but we're so thankful for the team that we have. But thank you for your prayers. Uh, I've got some big tests coming up. Uh, they're hoping to nail down where this stuff is coming from, and so I appreciate your prayers. Secondly, we got some exciting things happening. I mean, this summer is just packed. Uh, we just finished our our reading program down at the city center, fantastic time. And then we have coming up on the, on the 18th uh, here of August, we have our outdoor baptism. And we're so excited that we get to offer that outdoor baptism here at our Park Avenue campus. We're going to be gathering together, all together, to celebrate those who are taking the step of obedience to publicly declare their inward faith in Christ. And so we're excited to celebrate with them. And you know, one of the things that, that I, I notice around here is we, we love, right, we love tailgating at football games, don't we? And we celebrate our team, even though they may not have won yet. And so we want to have a time just to celebrate. You know, one of the things I love about being able to have the baptism here, we usually have it at Grace Fellowship Pond, but being able to have it here, I love the fact that there are going to be people driving by this road that are going to be seeing what's happening on August 18th, and they're going to wonder, what is taking place up there? I wonder what's happening. And what we have is a testament of life change through our church. And so I'm so excited that it can kind of be in the public square where people are going to be able to see that. And we're going to make a celebration of that. We're going to have a time of worship. We're going to celebrate with those who are being baptized. And and then we're going to have a fun as a community, as a, as a body. Uh, we're going to have food trucks here available. We're going to have some great pizza. East of Chicago Pizza is going to be here. And uh, we appreciate their uh, partnership with us. And, and uh, we're just going to be having a great time. Food trucks, bounce houses. Uh, and we're going to have a little dance party as well. Because if you can tailgate at football games, you can celebrate people being baptized. Right? So we're going to have a great time. And uh, we believe it's a time just to connect as a family, just to connect as a family and be able to celebrate with those who are taking that step of faith. Uh, also, we then have, uh, coming up as well, our, our preview service for our election in campus. August 11th is our preview service Sunday uh, at 9 and 11 a.m. We're going to be having two services there. And here's what we're going to ask. If you are interested in being a part of our Lexington campus, you want to check it out. And with an interest of going there, we want to invite you to that preview service at 9 or 11 a.m. We're going to have services there, live worship. Pastor Ron, our campus pastor, will be there. We'll have a great ministry team. Children's ministry is going to be fantastic. The video will be simulcasted there live, so you'll be able to see that as you are sitting here. Uh, I always say 80% of you don't look at me during this time. You look at the screens anyway, and so you can go there. It's a fantastic atmosphere. And so if you are interested in going there, now here's, I want you to get this. We're not looking for those who are curious. Preview service is not a time for the curious. It's a time for the interested. And so if you are interested in being a part of that campus 
on August 11th. Go there. We would love to have you there and to check that out. We are still looking for people to serve there. Uh, we're especially in need of children's workers. And so if you're interested in being a part of our children's team, both in Lexington or to backfill the needs here, uh, we would love to have you. By the way, August 9th, we invite everybody to come out to see the work that's been done there. August 9th, Friday evening from 6 to 8. Uh, we're going to open it up and just have an open house just internally for our church so you get to see the investment that you made as a church to make that campus happen. So we're excited about that. Uh, God is doing some amazing things. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 258, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you want to go ahead and, and put your finger in 1 Peter chapter 1 as well. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament. You know, I uh, love, as, as we walk through different stages of life, I love the way, uh, walking through those stages with my boys, I love the way change happens, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. And, and this past year, my, my third son, Jacob, got his license, and as a result of that, and some money he had, he decided he was going to get a car, and a new car to him. And so we were looking around for the right car, the car that he wanted, and kind of in the good shape that he would need. And so we were looking around, and we found this car in Fredericktown. And so we decided one evening to drive down there and check it out. And we were prepared to buy it if this was the one uh, that, that we feel was the right deal. And so we drove to Fredericktown. It was a kind of afternoon. And so Jacob and I drive down there just together. And we thought, well, if we buy it, we'll just come back to pick it up. It'll just be him and I. Um, and I wasn't yet comfortable with him driving a car he just bought. And so we drive to Fredericktown. We take a look at the car, and it's exactly what he wants. I mean, it's in great shape. It's a great deal. And so we decide, you know what? Let's go back home. Let's get the family, and uh, I'll drive it back. We'll all come down together and just kind of celebrate this moment. And so uh, we live in Lexington. We drove back down to Fredericktown picked up the car, and on our way home, and it's a red car, good shape, uh, a neat little car, we're driving home, I'm driving it, I have Jacob in the, in the passenger seat, one of the boys in the back, the van behind us, Allison's driving, and, and we're celebrating this provision of God that, that uh, through Jacob, we, he was able to get this car, it's a great deal, uh, it's a great buy, and so we're talking about it, and along the way, and if you know the journey from Lexington to Fredericktown, it's back roads, and I like to consider myself a deer hawk, meaning I see deer along the side of the road when no one else sees them. Like I have this spider sense for deer along the road. And so we're driving along, just coming home with this car, haven't even yet called insurance. We're driving along the road, and I look up on a hill to the side of my left, out the, out the driver's side door, and I see a pack of deer. When I say a pack, there's probably 10 to 12 in a field. And I look at some of them begin to kind of make their way to the road. And I say, hey, Jacob, do you see those, the deer right there? We, we better slow down. So I slowed down a bit, ready to see what they were going to do, where they going to try to pass in front of me. And so I noticed a couple of them were beginning to come a little faster. And so I slowed down to about 10 to 15 miles an hour. I was not going very fast. And as they began to hit the road, I began to actually stop. I wasn't going to hit the deer. I didn't have any plans to do that. This car was new to him. Uh, it's, a, it's a special gift that he just got. And so as the deer began to pass the road, when it hit the light beam of the car, it like freaked out. And what it did is it turned back into the car and it hit the front, it ran into the front, ran into the side twice, careened and bounced off the back and ran off. So I stop and I think, oh, this can't be happening. And so I get out, I look at the side of his car, and indeed it is dented in. I mean, just totally dented in up the side. 
And I'm like, oh, this is great. This is great. I literally was hit by a deer. I didn't hit the deer. The deer hit me. The deer came after us. Uh, now, it was drivable, and so we drove it home, and of course, then we had to call insurance and say, hey, we know we hadn't covered this car yet, but we have some, you know, we were going to call you today. We just picked it up last night, and uh, we need the insurance. Thankfully, insurance was able to take care of it. It took a little while to prove to them, hey, this deal was taking place, and we had bought the car, and we owned it, and, and you know, you have kind of some coverage on the un- umbrella of buying a vehicle. And, and so here was this moment. I remember Jacob and I in the car. Jacob had a great attitude, and he said, Dad, it's, it's okay. This is going to be a great story one day. And and then we talked about the fact of how these type of things that we get are precious to us, and slowly they lose their novelty, don't they? I mean, right, remember when you you got your first car? I had a 74 Nova. It was a piece of junk. It was rust. But when I first got it, I took it to car washes every single day of the week. You know how you would first get something, a house or a possession or or maybe a prize or something that you really love? And and in the beginning, it's special. It's unique. It's uncommon. It's It's set apart. And so you begin to treat it as such, and slowly then, normalcy begins to kick in. Jacob and I were joking about this, and we said, hey, you got your first dent in the car, so it really doesn't matter now. Right, but when you first get a car, what do you do? You take it and get a wash, you take care of it, you keep it meticulous, and then you get that rugged stone that kicks up and hits you, and then you're like, I'm done, forget it. No more, no more car washes. This is how life happens. By the way, can I tell you, there's a pattern of that we see all throughout the Bible. What do I mean? Well, God gives us things, gives us gifts, and when we take them for ourselves, and slowly those gifts that brought us excitement, brought us a thrill, brought us luster, now begins to lose its uniqueness. It becomes common. It becomes ordinary. It becomes over-familiar and lackluster. It happens in a relationship with Christ, It happens with the Bible. It happens with prayer. It happens even in our relationships, right? Even in our marriages, slowly what what was exciting at the beginning now becomes normal. Our kids, right, when you first hold them, there's something special about that. All the work that the mother has to do to to make sure that baby comes out, and all of a sudden you have the baby in your arms, this beautiful moment, and then then they become three-year-olds. It becomes familiar and ordinary. No longer the gift that we expected. It can happen to possessions. It can even happen to the church. Where, where we begin to get over-familiar with the church. And we begin to lose the, the uniqueness of what this body equals. And it can become ordinary. It can become routine. It can become just familiar. And so we can begin to check the box and say, okay, I'll go to church. But it loses its fervor in our lives. And we see this all throughout the Bible, story after story, of things that God gives his people that become ordinary common and familiar. I want to look at one of those stories here with you this morning. One of the stories that we find where this is exactly the kind of the path that is taken. It's, It's a story about King David. In fact, this is the very first thing that David does when he becomes the king. Let me give you a little background here. David is anointed king, but not yet king. At the time, the king of Israel, the first king of Israel, was a man named Saul. And Saul had kind of a mixed bag, a mixed review. If you remember, the people of Israel wanted to be like every other nation, and so God gave them a king. Saul was good in some ways, but he also did a lot of bad things. And we find him at the end of the story of his life fighting the arch enemy of Israel, Philistines. He was fighting against the Philistines, and we find in in 2 Samuel that Saul dies. 
Saul dies. Now David, who's been anointed king, now is made the king. And the first act of a king in that day was to go avenge the loss of the previous king. And so he went immediately with his army against the Philistines and defeated them. So here is David avenging the previous king's loss. And can I tell you, what we're about to read, I believe, is one of the greatest lessons of David's life. You might say, wait a minute, this is David who killed Goliath. This is David who had an affair with Bathsheba. This is David. Yes, I believe this moment is a moment that no one talks about. It is probably one of the greatest lessons in David's life. Because David realizes there's one thing that's missing from the people of Israel. Not only did they beat the enemy, but there's one other thing that's missing. One other thing that's been gone from Israel for 75 years that matters. And it was something called the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've seen Indiana Jones, you've probably heard of the Ark. Uh, the Ark is, you know, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the, it's the Ark. It's the representation of what God did for the people of Israel. It was literally a box. The Ark is a box. It means box, by the way. It's a box. It wasn't a very big box. It was three and a half feet by two and a half feet. It was overlaid with pure gold. On the top of this box, there were two cherubim that looked at each other. And in between the cherubim, there was a spot called the mercy seat. The reason it was called the mercy seat is because this thing was not to be touched. It was not to be, not to be seen. It was carried very meticulously by pole bearers who would put poles through rings. And they would cover it over before they would carry it. But on top of this place was a mercy seat. And what would happen is once a year, the high priest would go into the tabernacle and he would pour the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat as a representation of an offering of forgiveness for the people. And so it was a very, very important box to the people of Israel. There were three things inside of it. Inside of that box, there were three things to remember what God had done. There was a a pot of manna to remind them that God had provided food in the wilderness. Secondly, there was a copy of the two tablets of the law representing not only God's provision, but God's law that he had gave them, that God directs them. And then thirdly, there was a staff, a rod that was put in there, that was actually Aaron, the sidekick of Moses, his staff. And that staff in the middle of the wilderness actually budded flowers as a representation of God's power through the priestly line. And so we find these three things inside of the ark to represent God's power, God's provision, and God's rule. But this ark was more than a time capsule. It was more than just a piece of history. It was more than just a shadow box. It was more than just a time capsule of the nation, birth of a nation. This box represented something deeper. In fact, God told them what this was supposed to be. In Exodus chapter 24, it says this. Sorry, Exodus 25, it says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment, for the people of Israel. I want you to notice that. He says, God says, here's this ark. This ark is going to be a physical representation of the manifold presence of me in your life. It's going to be a representation of my presence with you. I'm going to speak from you there. I'm going to dwell with you there. I'm going to make my presence with the ark. This ark was a representation of the character of God. If you wanted to know if God loved the people of Israel, you looked at the ark. If you wanted to know if God's mercy was with the people, it was the ark that represented it. If you wanted to know God's grace was there, it was the ark that represented God's presence with them. He says, I will meet with you. I will be there. This is the representation of who I am. This is the most significant physical representation of the presence of God in Israel. And for 75 years, it had been hiding captive. 
at a man's house by the name of Abinadab. And the reason for that is because 75 years earlier, Israel took it into battle like it was a rabbit's foot, a good luck charm, and God allowed the Philistines to capture it. It didn't work very well for them, and so they left it at a man's house named Abinadab. And that's where we pick up the story. Here is David, ready to bring the ark back. Take a look with me, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 3. It says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Let's pause here for a moment. I want you to notice a couple things. So here they are, 75 years later, they defeated the enemy. Now they're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Notice they put the ark on a new cart. I want you to make a note of that. Just remember that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. They put the ark from the the cart of the Philistines, and they put it back on a new cart. Secondly, notice they throw a party. Right now, they get the music going. They got tambourines and castanets and drums and cymbals, and they're having a party. They're dancing together, bringing this ark back. They call in the DJ and say, hey, can you mix some rhymes for us? They get the marching band in line and say, let's bring the ark back in celebration. Why? Because God is coming home, baby. God's coming home. Let's celebrate the fact that the presence of God is coming back to Israel in this ark. Now, if you stop the story here, this seems like an awesome moment. This is one of the greatest moments, maybe the greatest feat of David, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But all of a sudden, right in the middle of the story, we find a curveball. Right in the middle of this story, you could never expect, if you've never read this before, you would never expect what is going to happen next. You never expect what's about to take place. Take a look with me as we continue in verse 6. It says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place, even to this day, is called Perez Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? It says that in that moment, the oxen stumbles on the threshing floor of Nacon. Now, I want to make sure we don't miss this moment. This is not by accident. This is not just incidental. The threshing floor actually would have been the smoothest part of the journey. You might say, well, how do you know that? Well, well, here's why. A threshing floor was actually a deck that was built on the top of a hill. And the reason it was built on the top of the hill is because they would take the wheat up on top of the hill and they would take a winnowing fork and they would throw the wheat in the air and the chaff would blow away in the wind and the grain would fall to the ground. So this would be the flattest part of the journey, right? All the hills and mountains and valleys and the rock formations, they had to get around with this ark. And now they came to the threshing floor. The threshing floor would have been the best place to be. It would have been the flattest place on the journey. It would have been the easy, easiest place to walk. What happens? It's in that moment the oxen stumbles. By the way, can I make a little side note to us this morning? Isn't it true in our journeys that sometimes the smoothest moments are the most dangerous? Isn't it true in our spiritual journeys that sometimes when things are just cruising along, things seem to be going well, things just seem to be hunky-dory, all of a sudden it's the most dangerous point. Why? Because we're not paying attention. Right? When, when it's a valley, we're holding on to God. When it's a mountaintop, we're looking to God in celebration. But when things are just kind of cruising, it can become the most dangerous part 
of the journey. The oxen stumbles on the smoothest part of the journey. It says that Uzzah puts out his hand to protect the ark, to guide the ark. And it says in that moment, God strikes him down there. And David, it says, is angry, and then it says he's afraid. Very interesting change there. We don't have time to dig into, but he's angry at God, and then he becomes afraid of God because he realizes, wait a minute, I don't think I can move this ark anywhere. I want you to notice he's angry. By the way, one of the things I love about the Bible is how honest it is, isn't it? I love the fact that it gives us these truths. It shows us the raw details. I love that about the Bible. And what I find interesting in the Bible, and this is, I think, an important point, what I find interesting is there are tons of characters where what they believe contradicts what they see. We talked about this in Habakkuk. We see this over and over again, where what we see contradicts what we believe. But we live in a culture that thinks we're the only ones of any generation to be so enlightened that we, we are the only ones ever offended by God. Right? We live in a culture that says, I'm offended by God. I see what's happening, I'm offended by God. Do you know what the Bible tells us? That God is an equal opportunity offender. I mean, for history, he's been offending people. There's moments where what we see doesn't match what we believe, where God and what he does rubs up against the grain of what we think he should do. This is one of those moments. I read this and I think, God, how could you do that? Uzzah was trying to do something good for you. Uzzah was trying to help you. How could you strike him down in that moment? Anger is a right reaction. By the way, can I give you another little side note that I think is so important? If God never contradicts you, if you have a God that never contradicts you, if you have a God that never collides with what you see, then you don't have God, you have an imaginary friend. If you try to live for God, there are going to be moments where what he does doesn't seem to jive with your life. It's going to rub against you like grain, like sand. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced that. If you have a God that, that never contradicts you, never goes against what you think life should do like, be like, then you don't have God. You have an imaginary friend. God is going to contradict your life sometimes. God is going to contradict our beliefs sometimes. God is going to go against the grain of what we believe should happen sometimes. And this text proves it to us. Now, as we go on, what we find is David waits 90 days to do anything. In this text, we find for three months, he sits there and he waits. He doesn't know what to do. He's now afraid. He goes from anger to fear, and he sits there for 90 days. Three months, they don't move. The army stays. And then we pick up the story. As they leave this, this, this ark, now the house of a man named Obed-Edom. Now, I love this because they leave it at a pagan's house. They don't even take it to a Jew's house. Take a look at verse, verse 12. It says, so David went and brought up the ark of God. So this is the second time they're bringing it. The ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I want you to notice the contrast between the first attempt and the second attempt. We see a contrast in the way they approach this moment. Notice the second attempt. It says they bear the ark of the Lord. Notice that they bear the ark of the Lord. This is very important. Notice it says they carry it the way it was meant to be carried. They don't put it on a new cart. Now they get the pole bearers to bring the poles to put through the rings to carry it with four of them, very small box, not very heavy, to carry the four of them in safety. Notice it says they bore the ark of the Lord. They carried it rightly. By the way, how would you like to have been a pole bearer getting the call that morning to say it's time to move the ark? 
Can you imagine that? Uh, I can imagine that a few of them called in sick. They said, they said, David, wait a minute here. We heard what happened to Uzzah. We are not gonna get near that, that ark. We're not getting near that box. In fact, we're not touching it with a 10-foot pole. Pun intended. Some of you, that pun is way too early, but it was funny. Notice, secondly, it says they sacrificed after six steps. Can I tell you, this is very interesting. The Chronicles, First Chronicles tells us it wasn't just a sacrifice once. They sacrificed at least six times. Many scholars believe they sacrificed every six steps back to Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you a picture. That means every six steps, they stopped at least six times on the journey. They stopped, and they did a burnt offering. They burned a cow to ash. Now, I'm not a farmer. I've never burned an entire cow to ash before, but I burn a few burgers on the grill, so I'm sort of an expert. Can you imagine? I imagine this took a while, didn't it? I mean, here it is. One, two, three, four, five, six. Let's bring a cow. Let's burn this thing to ashes, a burnt offering to the Lord. Do you see the change of posture? And then it says, David danced over the Lord with all his might, but he didn't just dance. He wore a linen ephod. Now, you and I read that and go, what in the world is that? A linen ephod was not the kingly garments or the warrior garments of battle. No, the linen ephod was actually the undergarment of a priest. It was a, an undergarment that went under the robe of the priest. Let me put it in today's terms. It was a, an adult onesie. It was an adult onesie that was a full-piece outfit that would be worn under the garments, the robes of the priest. And so David takes off his kingly robes and now puts on priestly robes. Why? Because this second attempt... It's not about Israel. This second attempt is not about David's glory. This second attempt is all about God. Now you might ask here this morning, all right, Dave, I get it. I get it. This is a cool story. It's very different. It's unique. By the way, many scholars believe this is the moment that David wrote Psalm 24. I'd encourage you to read that. Psalm 24 is where he asks, who is the king of glory? Who can come to his holy hill? Many scholars believe this is the moment he writes that psalm and a reflection of who's really the king. All of a sudden, it's all about God. Now you might say, well, Dave, okay, what does that have to do with me? Are you telling us today that there's something we can't touch? There's something we shouldn't come near? Is this just a moral call? What, what is it that we're supposed to do with this? Well, can I tell you, I think the answer is found in the difference between the first attempt and the second attempt. I believe we see a change of posture that gives us indications to how you and I then ought to live, how this extends to us, what we can take from this text. I believe we see something here that's deeper than just merely dancing in a linen ephod, deeper than just taking a sacrifice every six steps, and far greater than merely putting the ark and carrying it correctly. In fact, David says in 1 Chronicles 15, he gives us insight. He says, because we did not carry the ark the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Let me tell you what David is saying there. And this is the point this morning. This is what David is saying. This is the point. It is this, that holy things can easily become common things in our lives. The ark, meant to be holy, becomes common. The ark, meant to be unique and separate, now becomes just ordinary. They're carrying it like any other box. They put it on a cart. Yes, it's special. It's on a new cart. But they're treating it like it's just ho-hum. This is just what you do. We won the battle. Let's take the ark back. And what we're reminded is that very easily in our lives, holy things... Our faith, our marriages, our singleness, our kids, our workplaces, 
the Bible, prayer, this church can very easily become common. It can lose its active pursuit and become a mere artifact in my life. It can lose its place of purpose and become just a part of life. This is a reminder that holy things can become common things. When we disconnected from the giver, it becomes ordinary. Now, now I want you to notice, I, I use the word holy. I don't know about you, but holy brings up a lot of connotations, doesn't it? Like, we don't, we're not a people that love the word holiness. We don't celebrate holiness, right? We don't have songs that say, if you're holy and you know it, clap your hands. We don't say that. We say, if you're happy and you know it. There's an idea that we kind of buck up against holiness. Holiness, I believe, gets a bad rap in our culture, right? We say things like this about people. I don't know if you've said this ever. You've met people, and you say, well, those people, they're just holier than thou, what are we saying? They're a moral nerd is what we're saying. Like somehow they have it all together and I don't and they're just a moral nerd. Right, that's what we get. We give this bad connotation to holiness and in some ways holiness has lost its holiness. We live in a culture that while we celebrate uniqueness, what we all want is uniformity. We want conformity. We want to be together. Even though we celebrate uniqueness, we celebrate uniqueness so that everybody follows it. So we become conformed. We also look at holiness as judgmental, don't we? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word holiness, I think of someone with a bony finger pointing in my face going, how dare you? I feel judgment, don't you? When I think of holiness, I feel a bit of condemnation. But can I tell you, that is not what the word means. The word holiness in the Old Testament is the word, uh, the, the Hebrew word kadosh. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word hagios. And what it means in both languages, the same meaning, it means to be set apart, to be without equal, to be uncommon. It means to be pulled out of the ordinary, out of the sphere of the ordinary, and anything connected to it is drawn out of what is ordinary. That's what holiness is. It is being set apart. It is being unique in character and quality. It is beyond just our normal, mundane, everyday definition. It's something that's unique. And can I tell you, all through the Bible, holiness is not seen as a characteristic of God. Now follow me. A little theological here. Holiness is not seen as a characteristic of God. It's seen as a description of all his characteristics. What do I mean? How do you know today that God loves you? How do you, how do you, how do you know that he can accept you into his family? How do I know that he can look down upon me and want me to be a part of his family? How can I believe that? Because his love isn't like our love. His love is a holy love. It's unique. It's uncommon. How do I know that his grace is amazing? How do I know it will change my life? How do I know it will motivate my life? It's because it's not just grace in the way that I think about it. It's, it's holy grace. How, how do I know his mercy is able? How do I know his mercy won't condemn me? That his mercy isn't going to be fake? Because it's holy mercy. See, what makes love so abounding and grace so amazing and mercy so able is because God is holy. And can I tell you, we can't have life-altering love, life-altering grace, and life-altering mercy without a holy God. Holiness is what makes God effective. Holiness is God saying, I'm not messing around. Holiness is God saying, I'm coming after you because I love you. I'm coming after you because I'm gracious. By the way, you want proof of that? Look at the cross. I mean, here is an uncommon holy God, unique in all of his ways, out of the sphere of the ordinary, and he decides to show his holiness by going to a cross, the most unique way to die. 
he goes and hangs on the cross, and then, and then even his disciples believe that he was dead forever, but three days later, he walks out of the grave. Very unique, very uncommon. What is he doing? He's showing how set apart he is, that he even works salvation in a way no one would expect to draw us into his love, mercy, and grace. God is a holy God. But you know what we find interesting? It's all through the Bible that holiness is drawn and connected to you and I. I want to flip over for a moment to 1 Peter because I believe Peter had a unique perspective of holiness. Remember Peter who denied Jesus and then came back and became the leader of the church of Jerusalem? And this is what we see him writing in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is what he writes. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your own fully on the grace that we brought to you the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, unique, uncommon, out of the ordinary, you also be holy, you be unique, set apart, uncommon, out of the ordinary. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I want to end by giving four thoughts as to how you and I live an uncommon life. How do we live in the way of God uncommon? Number one, we find this. Christianity is not static addition. It's dynamic reflection. Do you notice Peter writes? Peter writes, prepare your minds for action. I love this actually Literally translated, it, it, it means gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't use that language today. I would encourage you to use it with your teenage children. It's awesome. Hey, son, gird up the loins of your mind. And they look at you like you have three heads, and they say, why are you speaking King James to me? Gird up your loins, it was actually literal here. What, what it means is, is when you would wear a robe, when you want to run, you had to lift the robe. And many of them wore a sash down the side. And they would tie the robe up to make kind of like shorts. And it would allow them to be prepared to run away if they needed to be. Or they needed to. And so the idea is prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare them to run. Why? Because there's a grace yet to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's more grace to be known. He says there's more to be seen. There's, you haven't seen everything. There's more yet to know about God. This idea of Christianity is not a grab-and-go mentality. It's not get the ark and take it home. See, many people approach Christianity in this way. Well, I'll take Christ because I want to go to heaven one day. But Christianity is not checking the box to get home. That's what they did with the ark. Christianity is a dynamic reflection of who God is. It's not a static addition. Well, I have Christ. I have the church. I have prayer. I have the Bible. I'm good to go. No, it all of a sudden becomes a dynamic reflection. So Peter writes, get your minds prepared for action. You're not just taking the ark home. No, why? Because there's, there's grace yet to be seen at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a result, be holy. Be set apart. Be different. There's more to know. See that you're a dynamic representation of a good, faithful, holy God. It's not just, well, I've tried Christianity. It's that I reflect Christianity in my life. I reflect who God is. Number two, holy living begins where ignorance ends. Holy living begins where ignorance ends. He says, he goes on in 1 Peter and he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I don't know if you've ever done anything ignorantly before where you just didn't know. I remember years ago, um, my son was playing baseball at Lexington, Lexington Little League and uh, we were on our way home, and he had this, um, this old Gatorade bottle, and he was like, 
he, he looked at me and said, hey, Dad, what do I do with this? And so I responded, and I said, well, just throw it out the window. Now, I was totally joking. I was being sarcastic. And all of a sudden, he takes the window, and he pushes the button to pull down the window. And I thought he was joking back with me. I thought he was kind of kidding around and going, all right, I'm going to do this. And so he winds on the window. All of a sudden, he just goes like that with the bottle. Throws out the window. I'm like, son, what are you doing? There was a lecture and cop sitting right ahead. I'm like, this is a disaster. Uh, they didn't see it happen, thank the Lord. I'm like, what are you doing? He said, Dad, you told me to throw it out the window. I was like, you can't do that. I was joking around. Like, you didn't get my joke. That wasn't a very good one. I didn't want you to throw that, that out the window. And so we turned around and went and picked it up. Don't, don't worry. I was like, son, do you not understand the rules of littering? Like, do you not get that you're not supposed to litter? He's like, well, Dad, I just... I thought it was allowed right here or something. You know, you told me I could do it. You ever acted in ignorance where you just didn't know? He says, listen, if you know Christ, if you have the grace of God in your life, you've been called holy, you've been called set apart. You know what that means? That you and I can no longer act in ignorance. We can no longer act as if we don't know what to do. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit that guides us. We have the word of God that leads us. We, we have the church that helps us, right? Now we know what we ought to do. Most people, when they sin, it's not doing what we don't know. It's doing what we know to be wrong and still doing it, right? That's what sin is. And so he says, don't be conformed to the former ignorance. By the way, if you act in ignorance, it's two things. It's intellectual arrogance or it's actually ignorance. And you didn't know that the scripture has said that. And so it's a time to grow in the Lord. That's the point. For David, they acted in ignorance. They didn't pay attention to what God had said. They didn't remember. Uzzah acted in ignorance. He should have known not to put the hand out to the ark, that God would have protected the ark. They acted in ignorance. Holy living begins where ignorance ends. Number three, your direction trumps your intention. Your direction trumps your intention. David, Uzzah, Israel had great intentions. But intentions don't get you, get you where you need to go. This is true, isn't it, in driving a car? You ever been driving down the road, and maybe you're going on a side street, and you look over and see something that's absolutely beautiful? Maybe it's a piece of property. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a river or lake. And you look over. If you're single, maybe it's that hot person. And you're just like, wow, yeah. What happens when you do that? All of a sudden, your body will overcompensate and you will begin to pull away from your intended direction. Isn't it true? And slowly you will hit the curb, you'll hit the guardrail. It happens all the time. People look out and they fade off. They don't mean to. Their direction is, their intention is to go the right direction, but they're going to go a different direction in spite of their intention. This is the picture. We can have great intentions, but intentions don't get us anywhere. Directions get us somewhere. Direction trumps intention. Why? Because direction leads to destination, not intention. Direction. What direction am I going? For David, for Israel, they went a, they had a good intention, but they went the wrong direction. For you and I, it's not just our intentions. You might be here this morning and say, well, I have an intention to do what's right. I have an intention to be good. I have an intention to, to follow Christ. I have an intention to read the Bible. I have an intention to be a good husband or a good wife or a good father or mother. I have an intention to be a good boss or a good worker at my job. I have intentions, but intentions don't get it done, does it? Direction. And can I tell you what we find in this story, what I'm reminded of? Peter writes, be holy in all things. It's the mundane things where we change our direction to change the, de the destination of where we're headed. 
it's where we give our attention. By the way, you want to know the difference between direction and, and, and intention? It's attention. Where do I give my attention to make sure I'm going in the right direction? That means holiness is not perfection. Holiness is pursuit. Holiness is constantly moving my attention to go in the right direction. Not just living on intentions, but actually going in the right direction. Direction trumps intention. What direction are you going? He says, be holy in all things. It's those small moments, those small, holy moments that God is calling us to. And that leads to number four. Don't miss the small, uncommon moments in the here and now. For David and Israel, they missed that this moment was a holy moment. That God was not just wanting them to get the ark back to Jerusalem. That God was trying to show them something right there, right in that moment. And for you and I, we can begin to miss the small, uncommon, holy moments in the here and now. God is at work. Even right now in this room, God is at work in our hearts. Right now, God is at work in your marriage. It might not seem that way, but God is at work. God's holy. He's set apart. He's unique. With your kids, God is at work. He, he is at work. You've you got to see. You've got you to be able to see the holy moments. He's at work in our church. You, you know, there are times where this can become ordinary. I check it off. I do it. All right, great. No, it's, it's uncommon. It's out of the ordinary. Slowly we can miss that. We can miss it, and it becomes lackluster. It becomes common. It becomes every day. Don't miss the small, uncommon moments in the here and now. In your job, take away, erase the distinction between secular and sacred. See them as both sacred Everything becomes sacred. Now everything becomes holy. Everything has a different purpose. Everything becomes set apart. You know, you may be here this morning and maybe you're not in that holy calling. And today would be a day where God is saying, listen, I'm I'm pulling the scales off and I'm drawing you in and I want to save you. I want to bring you into a a calling that's set apart, that's unique, that's different. I want to do a unique work in your soul. And I want to bring you salvation. For others, maybe you're here and you notice it. Life is just kind of normal. It's lackluster. It's not exciting. Can can I tell you, when you run into the holiness of God, you know what happens? You realize that uncommon, unique calling that he's given to you. This holiness extends to us, and now we are holy. Why? Because he's holy. And all of a sudden, our love looks different, our mercy looks different, our grace looks different, our interactions look different, the way we view the church and the Bible and prayer, it all looks different. Why? Because we have a holy God. A holy God who has touched our souls and made us alive. And maybe this morning you just need that refresher. You need that spark. You need that reminder. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? And we're going to end with a song that says, God, do it again. Refresh me again. Remind me again of who you are so that I may reflect you in my life. God, I want to thank you for your word. God, we all need this reminder. Why? Because, Lord, every good thing can become common. Every good gift that comes from above can become a common gift that we just use for life. It loses its fervor. It loses its its excitement. It loses its uniqueness. It becomes familiar. God, even our church can become familiar. God, what we do week in and week out, our relationships with you, our marriages, our 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 kids, our relationships, our workplace. It can be just common. And, and yet, God, for all the people of the earth, all the people of the world, we who are followers of you, we have this unique holy calling. No one else has that. 
No one else has purpose the way we do. No one else has, has, has direction the way we do. And so, God, I pray you'll beckon us not to intention but direction. That you'll beckon us not to see it as static addition. It's just adding to our life, but it's dynamic reflection of you in our lives. God, may we not live in ignorance, but may we live in full knowledge and glory of who you are, that you can work afresh and anew today, that you can change us from the inside out so that we can see the uncommon holy moments in the here and now. And we can then thank you and celebrate you and live for you. So God, we pray, do it again. Do it again. Remind us of the holiness you've called us to. All for your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Holy One. Amen. Let's sing this song to him.